Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of New Books in Anthropology. My name is Dana Dennis. I'm one of the hosts of the channel. Today, I'm bringing you an interview with Dr. Diane about her new book, Romancing the Sperm, Shifting Biopolitics and the Making of Modern Families. This book makes a really fascinating contribution to the field of medical anthropology and specifically to the anthropology of reproduction. I hope you enjoy hearing the interview as much as I enjoyed reading the book. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of New Books in Anthropology. I'm here today with Dr. Diane Tober talking about her new book, Romancing the Sperm, Shifting Biopolitics and the Making of Modern Families from Rutgers University Press. Dr. Tober is an assistant professor at the University of California, San Francisco Institute for Health and Aging. She's affiliated with the Department of Anthropology, History, and Social Medicine, and she's also affiliated with the Bixby Center for Global Reproductive Health. Um, In addition to this book, she's also produced and directed a documentary film called The Perfect Donor. Um, Diane, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, So can you start off our interview by telling us a little bit about yourself, um, how you came to do research on this topic and and write the book? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Back in the late 80s, early 90s, I was just a new graduate student at University of California, Berkeley, in in the medical anthropology department, um, affiliated also with UC San Francisco. And um, I was working with uh, Dr. Gay Becker, Professor Gay Becker at University of California, San Francisco, as a research assistant on her project looking at gender differences in response to infertility. And for that project, we were interviewing um, heterosexual couples, obviously, um, about their decisions surrounding um, choosing a donor, a gamete donor, a sperm donor, or an egg donor, or using surrogacy, or just the trauma that people were experiencing regarding sort of stigma and failure of the body to do what they wanted it to do, which was to produce a child with their partners. And at the time, single women and lesbian couples were calling up to volunteer for the interview, but because they fell outside the scope of the NIH-funded study, they were being turned away. And I and this, was again, was in the late 80s, early 90s, and nobody really thought about at the time about infertility for people who weren't married. I mean, the very definition of infertility was uh, trying to conceive with your male or or female partner, um, with your opposite sex partner for a year or more and um, not being able to. So this idea of infertility among um, people who were not in heterosexual relationships intrigued me. And also I thought this would be a really interesting area to look at how people think about sperm donation. So in choosing single women and lesbian couples, I figured I would learn something different about how people think about genetic selection or choosing donors compared to how, for example, heterosexual couples do, which is usually to match their their partners. So if you have a a woman who's not conceiving with her husband, then uh, you find a sperm donor that matches the husband. So I was really interested in this idea about what people think is genetically valuable and how they um, you draw upon that information to to choose a donor to create their families. 
And so, yes, yeah, so I started interviewing single women lesbian couples. Then I started doing field work in sperm banks. And then uh, a few years down the road, as I approached the end of that project, I received uh, funding from the Social Science Research Council Sexuality Research Fellowship Program to start interviewing sperm donors and looking at issues surrounding sexuality and commodification of the body. Thanks. And the result of that, just saying for our listeners, is a really rich, multi-layered um, book that looks at a lot of different institutions and, and groups of people who are involved in this process of sperm donation. Um, that long-term fieldwork really pays off in this book. Um, one thing that I was surprised by that I didn't realize before reading the book um, is that sperm banks actually have a lot of leeway in determining their policies about who they accept as donors and what kind of clients they will work with. Um, so can you tell us a little bit more about the sperm banks and the reproductive health clinics that figure in your research and in terms of their ideologies and their practices? Yeah, absolutely. What I've learned in doing this research and doing the field work in sperm banks is actually also really helping me now in my current research, but we'll talk about later. But what I've learned in doing this research is that each clinic or each sperm bank is sort of a little microculture, you know, and many of them take on to some degree the personality of the founder. So for example, in the sperm banks in my research, I looked at the Sperm Bank of California, Rainbow Flag Health Services, and then the repository for germinal choice that is now uh, closed, but was down in Escondido at the time, also colloquially known as the so-called genius sperm bank. And each of these different businesses started with as a brainchild basically of of the founder or group of founders so the sperm bank of california was a, was a group of feminist women in oakland california that were really focusing on providing access to the to the women that did not have access through uh more traditional clinics um and even in the bay area so it was very intriguing to me to see how the personal politics led to the shaping of these different businesses in terms of the clients they would serve. So the Rainbow Flag for uh, Health Services, for example, was started by a gay male and his his partner to meet the needs of the lesbian LGBTQ community and to build community through sperm and through sperm donation. He would have um, mixers, for example, where you know sperm meets egg kind of thing. Um, like I said, the Sperm Bank of California was started by a feminist health organization uh, back in the late uh, back in the eighties, and then the Repository for Germinal Choice, of course, was started by uh, Robert Graham back in the eighties as well. And then focusing on you know the best and the brightest, a, a very eugenically oriented uh, uh, sperm bank, and it of course com completely uh, would deny access to anybody outside the realm of heterosexual and married. So. Um, yeah, so they each of these banks had different policies in terms of who they would serve as clients, as well as who they would serve as donors. So with the most sort of selective being the, the, the genius sperm bank, the repository for germinal choice, uh, initially only wanting to have Nobel laureate sperm donors, but they had to relax their standards because um, they weren't getting that many Nobel laureates to be donors in, in their business. And then, of course, the Rainbow Flag Health Services was also selective in the fact that they chose only um, gay or bisexual men who were to be sperm donors. So um, and then the repository, then the Sperm Bank of California would accept anybody of uh, any ethnic or ancestral background. But because they ship 
sperm to the city, to New York state, where you're not allowed to even be in receipt of sperm from gay men. They had to, to keep gay men out or men who had sex with men outside. Um, they could not recruit them to be donors. Right. And that was about concerns about like transmission of HIV. Was that the sort of justification for that decision? Correct. This New was, York? Correct. Yeah. The, this, some of these policies uh, emerged during the HIV AIDS crisis. Um, and then later when we started to freeze and bank sperm and have better quality control, so to speak, to make sure or to make sure that uh, people with that were HIV positive were screened out um, by by quarantining the sperm and so on. Later, that rule started to make less sense, and that's one of the things that Leland Trayman at the Rainbow Flag Health Services uh, really took the FDA and the state of New York to task for was um, the fact that barring men who have sex with men from being sperm donors was just blatantly discriminatory. So he really made it his life's mission to buck that that rule and try to um, get equality for all men to be sperm donors, regardless of who they have sex with. So that was really interesting to me, too, is not only the politics of how people think about their donors and who they want to bring into the world in terms of creating their families, but also the politics behind um, having a business, this kind of a business, and who who makes a family and who's allowed to create family in this very constantly changing political environment of, of regulating uh, sexuality and family. Yeah. Oh man. It's so fascinating to think about, um, to think about these as businesses. Maybe we can talk a little bit later about kind of your analysis of gifts and commodities, right? But the whole language is about sort of sperm donation and giving life. But at the same time, like, of course, these are businesses. There's a, there's like a profit motive here. Um, Okay, but to back up a little bit, um, when folks are selecting donor sperm through a clinic, you know, they've chosen a clinic to work with, and then they're actually selecting the sperm from donors who donate to that clinic, what are some of the factors that they consider? How, um, how do they make that choice, and how does your idea of romancing the sperm come into this? Right. Yeah, well, I saw so many varied... <sighs> varied ways of thinking about sperm and what it contains. So many of the, so first off we have the lesbian couples and we have the single women regardless of sexual, sexual orientation. So with the lesbian couples, I found that many were choosing donors in a very parallel way to how heterosexual couples would choose donors is that the person who was conceiving with their egg wanted a donor that looked like their partner. So you know, that's because and that's because people want to be able to go out and and be family and not have to out themselves 24 seven, for example. Um, and also, you know, regardless of, again, of whether you're a heterosexual couple or a, or a same sex couple, but also um, pe- people want somebody that they're attracted to. And presumably they're attracted to their partner. So they want somebody who looks like them. So they look like family. So I think that's um a primary concern among people with partners, regardless of sexual orientation, is to have somebody who looks like them. With the single people, what I discovered was that the the selection was more varied. So um, people would want somebody either who looks like themselves or looks like somebody they might be attracted to in the future. 
So that's the first layer is the appearance appearances. The second layer, the deeper layers that go beyond appearances, whether it's for single people or for same-sex couples, the second layer is getting more at what do we, what kinds of traits do we value beyond appearances? So that would start to get into things like um, one couple, for example, saying, well, we couldn't relate to somebody who didn't drink coffee and wasn't athletic. So we chose a coffee drinking basketball player who happened to be a medical student over the medical student who played badminton and didn't drink coffee. So these kinds of really quirky things or, or we chose, we couldn't, we couldn't choose somebody from Germany or the Germanic background because of the atrocities created during world war two. And we don't want to propagate um, that, that group because we want to have a, make a political, we want to make a statement to, to propagate a different group. So maybe choose somebody who's Irish or Italian. Um, so those, these personal um, values played into donor choice. Uh, among some of the single women that I, I spoke to, or, or lesbian couples I spoke to, also would say they wanted an ethnic mix. So they were trying to find people with different types of uh, combinations, maybe somebody who was had an Asian and Hispanic background or African-American and uh, Chinese or, or something along those lines. So, so definitely, definitely ethnicity ancestry played into it as well. And then beyond that, there are also things like hobbies, like they wanted somebody who played piano because their mother played piano, but things that they could relate to things that made them feel this person would be familiar and would fit into our family. Now, beyond that level, among the same um, among the single women who were who identified as heterosexual, there was another thing that I found very interesting is that some of them were talking about their donors as if they could potentially meet them at some point in the future. Now, some of these donors were identity release donors, which meant that the children could contact them once they turned the age of 18. So people would there was one woman in particular I interviewed who had not yet conceived, but who wanted a donor who could be identity released because she wanted the opportunity to meet him in, in the future. And she had envisioned being at her future child's graduation with her sperm donor and that they would eventually fall in love and have a relationship. So there are all these different kinds of romancing and, and, and uh, themes that played into how women chose donors and one lesbian couple uh, said to me that when they were choosing a, no, a known donor as opposed to a sperm bank donor and and put together a group of their friends to help them find a, a donor in their community and they invited these different donors over to their house for brunch and so on and they're saying well this is like you know modern dating you know but in a in lesbian context and only to reproduce not to necessarily have a relationship or or a sexual relationship, romantic relationship with the donor. So there's varied, varied themes in terms of what comes up in terms of how people individually uh, think about donation and think about genetic material. And what I, in the book, what I talk about is how these perceptions, what I call folk genetics, these perceptions about what is genetically heritable play th in through the body in, in a very fundamentally and still an individualized eugenic kind of way. It's not the eugenics we think of more broadly in terms of, you know, uh, what we saw at the, at the so-called genius sperm bank. 
um, in a traditional way, but it's sort of an individualized bodily embodied politics with donor sperm. And I call this grassroots eugenics. So it's, it's still selection and it's still selection with intent about the kind of people you want to reproduce, but it's in a very individualized and political way. Yeah, thanks for that. I, I think this idea of grassroots eugenics is really interesting and something that I was surprised to think about because, of course, as you say, there's usually this expectation that eugenics is um, like a negative thing, like trying to reproduce the Nobel laureates. Um, but the people that you're writing about are thinking about it in terms of what kind of a family do I want to build and what what kind of a person do I want to bring into the world um, in a very, yeah, as you say, a very sort of individualistic sense. And maybe the choices that they're making reflect their own sort of idiosyncratic values rather than an overarching ideology of um, what kind of a person is a worthy person to bring into the world. Exactly. And also, I mean, remember, this is in the primarily in the LGBTQ community, as well as single women without male partners who are already these are people who are bucking the system through their own reproductive decision making. And so in part of that bucking the system is also a backlash against the conservative politics in the United States that's trying to actually limit the ways in which families can form and, and to limit which can't families can form. So I see it as these very individualized political statements through, like I said, through reproduction against these larger systems that are trying to um, constrain people's choices. Yeah, thanks for that. Um, so you got, as I was saying before, a lot of different sides of the story because you were able to interview not only people who were trying to become pregnant through using donated sperm, but also some people who were sperm, sperm donors. Um, so can you tell us a little bit more about their side of the story and what was motivating their choices? Yeah, the, uh, they were very interesting. Um, one of the things that, of course, you know, most of the sperm donors were college students and doing it for the money. Many of them at first thought, wow, I mean, I can get paid to give people sperm. How great is that? You know, um, some of their motivations, like I said, were, were financial and sperm donors don't get paid that much considering how, you know, how often they, that they have to go through a rigorous screening process to, to get uh, accepted in the first place, but it's enough to, you know, at the time, especially help pay rent, pay bills, um, one donor told me he wanted to save up for a motorcycle. So I saw that as basically exchanging one form of commodity for another. So exchanging sperm for a motorcycle, so to speak. And, um, and so their choices were varied. What I also found interesting was, um, or the reasons were varied. Some people did, did have a more in-depth internalized look at why they wanted the sperm donors. So some would say, for example, they had a friend who had gone through infertility treatment or there's, or they were familiar with uh, the process or they were donor conceived themselves or something deeper motivated them in terms of wanting to help. Um, so there was the combined reason of, of both doing it for the money as well as wanting to help people have children. And some were actually very genetically motivated of, you know, the so-called wanting to spread the seed. Um, and so I, I, I saw all kinds of ranges of, of motivations behind people's decisions to provide sperm. And what I found also really interesting was 
the way in which these these guys were regulating their own sexuality in order to be able to do work as a sperm donor and i i thought of this as in terms of a type of reproductive work that that men were men were doing and are doing that is somehow different from other kinds of uh, reproductive labor, but also has some parallels to the sex industry, not the sex industry, but sex work in, a, in that they're making money through their bodies with a sexual act. That, uh, so I started thinking about how sex and money and, and reproduction kind of came together in, a, in an interesting way in these spaces. Yeah, that was a really interesting part of the book for me as well, uh, because I hadn't really thought before about the kind of regimes of discipline Mm -hmm. um, that people might have to go through if they want to be sperm donors. So would you like to tell us a little bit more about that? Like what what is the process actually like? Well, right. So, uh, you know, one of the um, sperm bank founders that I interviewed, Barbara Raboy, she said, well, a guy who's playing ball with his partner isn't going to make a sperm a good sperm donor. So, you know, by that obviously she means having sex with his partner. So, mm-hmm. basically most men who are going to be sperm donors um will not be able to regularly engage in sexual activity that leads to ejaculation. So, men would tell me how they would um if they had a girlfriend or if they had people that they were seeing, and one, one guy was polyamorous, so he had multiple people he was seeing, if they had a partner or partners, they would engage in sexual activity just up to the point of ejaculation, but not let it go any further than that. Um, people, one guy told me that if he weren't a sperm donor at the time, he would have been much more interested in having a girlfriend. So he did not have a girlfriend and saw this as a way of sort of not having to deal with a relationship, so to speak. And then other people, for example, in um, at the Rainbow Flag Health Services, uh, one guy was a donor for several months, but when he started dating with another guy and and decided that he, he did want to become sexually active, that then he told the founder, he told Leland, look, I've, I've been dating this guy. I think we're going to have sex. And then they both made the decision that he was going to stop being a donor. So every time a donor goes in to, uh, to provide a sample, and I always find these euphemisms really interesting in these clinical settings, you know, provide samples. But any time that he would go in to provide a sample, they would be asked these, these questions about their sexual activity in the last week. Um, if somebody had had any kind of sexual activity resulting in ejaculation um, before donation, often it would show up in, in lower lower sample, lower sperm um, counts in the, in the sample. So sometimes men were, were worried about if they had ejaculated before go, uh, going to provide a sample, that if their sperm counts were low, were low, they wouldn't get paid. So they would make sure that they would give enough time in between ejaculation and going to the sperm bank before um, to provide samples um, so that their sperm counts could build back up. And I remember um, you saying that if the sperm count was low in a particular sample, the the clinic might actually sell it at a sort of discount price, like two for the price of two vials for the price of one, because the right. the sperm count is lower. Which, which you know is just so fascinating to think of, like bargain sperm, fifty um, yeah. percent off. <laughs> yeah. Buy um, now. What a deal. <laughs> but then, of course, like some of the people who are who are purchasing and using the sperm. Um, sort of learn to recognize like, oh, that probably means the count is low, you know, don't waste your money on that discount stuff. 
Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. When people go through this many times, and this was another thing that I was noticing at the time is that many of these of the women who were going through these the, the insemination process, they didn't necessarily get pregnant on the first try, or the second try, or the third try. And I knew some, and then they would go to their doctors, and they would, and the doctors would say, "Well, you have to be trying for a year or more to be clinically infertile." And for people who are using donor sperm. Trying for a year or more with donor sperm can be quite costly. At the time, it was several hundred dollars, uh, $150 a vial or so. Now I think it's up to about $800 a vial. So it, it really didn't make a medical or financial sense for, for people who are choosing to use sperm donors with, to go through that process so many times before coming to a clinical diagnosis of infertility. So this was a real problem for especially the people who were experiencing infertility and, and having difficulty conceiving. And it's, it's still something that really isn't remedied by um, you know, the medical context of how we define infertility. It's gotten better. Many, many clinicians that have female patients will now, that are not trying to get conceived with their husband or with, or with free sperm, will recognize the cost can be prohibit, prohibitive and, and initiate um, a diagnosis of infertility or earlier than they used to. But at the time, people were being t- turned away by their doctors, told, come back in a year. <laughs> you know, and that, yeah. like I said, that could be quite costly a year later. Yeah, yeah. And of course, like, um, the the economics is so important in thinking about all of this, because if you are paying, you know, a few hundred dollars every month for sperm, and you have to go for a whole year in order to sort of establish medical infertility that is cost prohibitive. And then, of course, there are other costs associated with the process as well. So it definitely does become like cost prohibitive um, for people who are maybe working class or just don't have a lot of of cash lying around. Exactly. And so there's, there's not there's not because of the financial component of getting sperm from a sperm bank, there isn't equal access to sperm across all demographics, you know, in terms of income and so on. And, and, and also in terms of ancestry, there was very, at the time there was very little diversity in terms of the pool of donors in, in many of the sperm banks um, because they had a hard time recruiting donors of different uh, ethnic and ancestral backgrounds. Um, but also one thing I noticed is people who didn't necessarily have the financial resources to go to a sperm bank and purchase sperm would draw upon their social resources to find sperm for free. So with known donors who would potentially have some sort of role in the child's life to um, be present, but not too present. And, and then uh, people in those situations had to find not only a person who they, that they could get along with, but also a person who wouldn't threaten them for custody. Oops or a person who, um, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't in some way, uh, be too intrusive into their families. Yeah, that's a really important point. So there's not only this kind of clinical route of sperm donation with, um, someone who's a stranger and who you may or may not find out their identity later. Um, but as you say, some people are choosing known donors. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, how some people made the choice of one versus another, a known donor versus an unknown donor versus a, an identity release donor? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, so um, one thing I found with people choosing 
sperm bank donors. And most of the women, and again, I should should add here that the people in this study at the time in the 90s all identified as women. Uh, They were female born and female identified as women um, at the time. And uh, in some of my later interviews, there was more of a transgender component that started to come in. So I just want to put that out that that these are people that identified as women. Um, And later I had more diversity in terms of gender nonconforming. But in any case, to get back to the question that you asked, um, the people who chose sperm bank donors usually wanted a donor who would at least be identity released so the child could meet them at some point in the future. So that was really important for people who did not have male partners to have an identity released donor. At the same time, many of the women that I interviewed said that in their throwing up, men kind of came and went. Mm. <laughs> their biological, so to speak, <laughs> you know, a tongue in cheek there. Um, and that their biological fathers did not necessarily have a large role in their lives and that they learned that some of their, that the social father, that their mother's partner after the biological father had more of an important role in their life than their biology. So for some of these people, they saw fatherhood as a very social process, a very fluid process and not necessarily a biological, not biologically based. So people who were comfortable with, uh, with the using sperm banks pretty much felt that a man wasn't necessary to raise a healthy child or a male. And they, they could find other, and if so, they could find other male role models like grandpas and, and uncles and things like that. For the people who wanted to really wanted to use known donors, whether, whether they um, chose it out of financial or other reasons, but the people who wanted to use known donors really felt strongly that, because they were going to be a single mother, they wanted to have some sort of male a ro- male role model, so to speak, involved. They thought it would benefit the child. And they wanted to see themselves, some of them wanted to see themselves as co-parents. Um, so they would be the, the mother, but the donor would be like an uncle. So maybe not co-parent, that wouldn't be the right word. But a donor who would, who would have a paternalistic, supportive role in, to both themselves and to the child but not necessarily be there in the household as a partner and, and doing the day to day, but somebody who, who could provide a little bit of relief. So, but people who use unknown donors were really concerned with finding somebody they could trust because especially when uh, same sex couple families, LGBT families and so on were being so assaulted or or having so many challenges and having their families recognized, there was a lot of fear among some people that their their family could be um, vulnerable to some sort of, you know, legal threat. So people wanted to make sure that their families were legally protected as well. So, and in fact, there have been donors that have tried to sue for custody in, in many different cases. So, it, it, it is a, a real worry and it can be problematic. Sure, sure. Um, I want to get back to something that I had flagged earlier on um, the anthropological concepts of gifts and commodities um, and right. how sperm and other sort of bodily substances really force us to rethink that distinction between gifts and commodities when we're talking about donation. 
Um, and I really right. liked your discussion of altruism and how that affected the economics of sperm donation. So can you explain a little bit more about that for our listeners? Right. Yeah. Well, it was interesting to me that when people were perceived to be not in it for the money, when sperm donors were perceived to be not in it for the money, they, they're, the value of their sperm what carried greater emotional it carried greater emotional value for the people who were purchasing it. So for people who were going through these different donor profiles, you know, you have, at the time these profiles were not online, they were in these large binders. And so people would come into the office and they, or potentially call over the phone, but they would go through these binders. They would look through these different profiles and they would look really, um, they would look really hard at the descriptions that donors gave in terms of their motivations, why they decided to become a sperm donor and and, uh, and what their hobbies were, et cetera, and so on. But the donors who stood out as saying something along the lines of, you know, I, uh, my sister went through infertility treatment. I saw how hard it was for her and her husband, and she finally got pregnant, and I really want to just give back. Those kinds of narratives carried were, were more valuable emotionally as well as financially to some degree because those donors would get chosen more often than the donor who said I'm donating sperm because I want to you know buy a motorcycle or it it's a good way to make money and I can you know I want to take a trip to Europe those kinds of explanations didn't really seem among most people to have much emotional they seemed like people that didn't have much emotional maturity and so people were looking for somebody who had who seemed like they thought about the process, they were doing it for the so-called right reasons. And so, yeah, so I talk about these commodities because sperm is a commodity. It's being framed as gift and it's being imbued with this sort of moral quality based upon how the people who provide sperm present their motivations. So I found that to be very interesting as well in terms of how people thought about, and also even in the sperm banks, you know, the sperm bank staff would sometimes help the men craft their narratives um, in some places so that they would be chosen more. And I see this even more so now in my work with, with egg donors is this crafting of the narrative in order to be more appealing and to appear to be more, um, more altruistically motivated than financially motivated, even though it is a product that is bought and sold. Yeah. And that's just so amazing that it's like, it's the language of the gift or the sort of moral quality that is imbued in the sperm or the egg that actually increases its value as a commodity. I just find that so fascinating. Yeah, it is. It's fascinating to me too. And it continues to be fascinating as I continue, continue this work, this, this work. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to ask about the concept of biopolitics, which is one of the key words in your title. Um, and of course, Michel Foucault's concept of biopolitics has been very generative for many anthropologists and medical anthropologists, scholars in other fields. And so can you um, just tell us a little bit about how you use the concept of biopolitics in your work? Right. Well, I'm thinking about it in a, in a number of different ways. Uh, I'm thinking about sort of the, the biopolitics politics in terms of, again, the political system in terms of whose families are valued and whose are not, who's, how family is regulated um, in the laws and so on. Um, for example, same-sex marriage wasn't uh, permitted in the United States until 2015 with the Obergefell decision. You know, that, that is 
the regulation of family and who could become family and, and how um, is a very, it's their systems of power, right? There's systems of power that give rights to some and not rights to the to others. And then there's the, the way in which biopolitics operates in these different clinical and sperm bank settings. So the biopolitics of, of, of genetic, um, again, of who can reproduce. So for example, at the repository for germinal choice, you had a very traditionally eugenically motivated um, practice that thought that they were giving children the best possible chances in life through uh, through uh, sperm donation. Uh, um, and then you have the, a different kind of biopolitics in the rainbow flag health setting where they're trying to be sort of the counter to that, uh, to, to promote um, uh, and, and permit and encourage building of LGBTQ community, communities through donor sperm. So the, the the way in which we think about reproduction in these different spaces is both personal and political. And then you have, again, and this goes back to Shepard Hughes and Locke article a number of years ago, back in the 80s, I believe it was, um, about the three bodies. You have how the personal biopolitics in terms of, of how we create and make political statements through our bodies. So and that through the choice of donor sperm, through through family creation and, and and building communities and bucking up against those those larger trends that are trying to keep some people regulated and out, um, and and these are all about to some degree these intrinsic how power operates at different levels in society and and in individual. And one of the thing about things about Foucault that uh, I mentioned in the book is that he didn't really, he looked at the, the political systems, you know, the institutions and so on, and the overarching aspect of governmental suppression and, and biopower and so on on the individual body. But his analysis didn't really look at the individual resistance to those larger structures. And that's one of the things I see playing out in, in my work and in my book is how individuals have their own agency and buck up against those systems and actually push back and to create um, to to create the worlds that they want. Yeah, that's a a hopeful sort of take on it, right? Is that people aren't just controlled by these larger structural regimes, but they have some choice um, in terms of making the families that they want to see in the world. Exactly. Yeah, and 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 everyday life. So uh, you know. And, 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 and that that is something that provides me with hope is that we're not just these passive recipients of of biopower that have to you know conform or die <laughs> you know that yeah. we do have this in, individual agency we do have voices and we do make decisions and we do see these political and biopolitical and powerful structures and we say you know what you might want to go with, along with that but I'm not <laughs> and this is how I'm going to be different and this is how I'm going to actually make change. Yeah, yeah. Um, your book is, as we've said, primarily based on research that you conducted in the 1990s. But one of the things that I really like about this book um, is that um, it feels like it's had time to sort of breathe and grow and expand over the years um, since you did the primary research. Um, and a lot has changed since then in terms of reproductive technology and also in terms of laws that affect families, as you said. 
Um, and your book takes some time toward the end to reflect on those changes. So broadly speaking, what do you think are some of the most important changes related to your research that have taken place in the U.S. since the 1990s? Right. And where yeah, do you think well, we might the, be headed next? One of the biggest changes I've seen, and I and I talk about, I start really talking about this, in, I think in the last three or four chapters, um, is well, first first of all, same section that marriage is is now permitted in, in the United States. It's, you know, it, it was permitted in Spain in 2007. I don't know what it, what took us so long, but okay. Um, and then one of the biggest changes I see is is in terms of how we think about sexuality and gender. So at the time when I, in the 90s, when I was doing the work, the majority of the field work, um, we had different language for people who identified as, you know, lesbian, gay, dyke, uh, butch, et cetera. We had this kind of language, but we didn't, and we, we didn't have, for example, cisgender, transgender, gender nonconforming. Uh, we weren't thinking about trans people, trans uh trans women as sperm donors or trans um, men as as sperm purchasers for example mm-hmm. so uh, this notion of sexuality in our in, uh, has become more fluid it's become more encompassing of people's actual lived experiences now we often will talk about people with ovaries people who birth people who have sperm and think about the different components that go together to make a baby not necessarily the different gender identities that go together to make a baby so um so that that to me is a really interesting cultural shift especially in california i don't know how much it's it's spread out to the rest of the country but especially in california it's a very significant shift that's that really reflects more of people's and communities experiences who are using these services we've also seen a rise in um in uh technologies like egg freezing we've seen um, people pr- preserve their sperm or their eggs before undergoing uh, gender aff- affirming therapies such as hormone um, gender affirming hormones or surgeries to to so the bodies can match the the their own identities. So there's been a, a lot more discussion uh, along those lines. And then uh, beyond that, there's also these technologies have grown rapidly. So some of the things that are possible now weren't really done back then or weren't even possible then. So again, like I mentioned, um, egg freezing, we have the development of egg banks um, that are parallel to the sperm bank model that we didn't have before because of this process of vitrification, the flash freezing eggs that leads to better survival rates of frozen eggs. We have uh, more tinkering with, with DNA um, for better or worse, you know, the the, the uh, scientist in, in China, for example, who recently uh, announced uh, the first gene edited um, uh, twins, uh, infants. So, uh, you know, along with these new possibilities come new responsibilities and, and also new concerns about what it, how we're altering our humanity through technology and how new things are becoming possible that we didn't think about before. One of which, for example, is in the context of donation, sperm and egg donation, gamete donation, is that anonymity is no longer possible. And it was something that people were told was was possible back back then or even required. So the fact that there are now many, many, many donor-conceived people 
who are searching for and finding their donors, as well as donors that are searching for their off- donor-conceived offspring. And these were things that people weren't thinking about back back then, except for the except for the, um, the sperm bank of California. They were among one of the first to really offer this identity release option. But we're, because of DNA direct-to-consumer testing, we're now seeing situations like kids, biological half-siblings finding each other, and then lo and behold, finding out that their their biological donor was actually their mother's doctor. You know, so we have about three different cases recently where um, the doctor turned out to be the, the sperm donor, and and children have found fifty or so half siblings. So <laughs> it's it's getting uh, the changes have been rapid. Society is having a difficult time, I think, catching up as as technology usually kind of gets ahead of how we can think about what it is we need to do to consider what is reasonable to pursue versus what is not reasonable to pursue. Well, I mean, it sounds like a great time to be a medical anthropologist and specifically an anthropologist of reproduction because there is so much change and there are so many interesting and sort of thorny questions that are arising from these changes. Um, Exactly. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, and that's what got me thinking about in terms of biopolitics, you know, is there something unique about, and this was just sort of an idea that I was having as I was writing the last chapter and and trying to synthesize all this information and, and, and thinking back to Foucault and biopolitics and biopower and so on, I started thinking, is there something unique about reproduction? biopolitics of, of reproduction compared to other types of biopolitical um, things like, for example, observation, <laughs> you know, and mm-hmm, the panopticon mm-hmm. and things like that. And so I, I was sort of playing with this idea and I haven't really fully developed it yet, but I was playing with this idea is, is it time to start thinking in terms of what would it, what would be uniquely biopolitic, you know, in terms of, um, how we think about and and how the body and genes and DNA and and reproduction and so on is is emerging in these new spaces of rapidly growing technologies. Yeah, this is something fundamentally different, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, is there anything else that you want to highlight about the book that we haven't touched yet? Ah. <sighs> There's a lot in here. Yeah, I went through my head chapter by chapter. I think we came out to the conclusion. Yeah. So, no, I think I'm, I think I, I, I'm pretty, uh, I think we covered pretty, uh, quite a bit about the book. I hope people still feel like they have to buy it. <laughs> yeah, I definitely would recommend that people do because there's lots of great stories and illustrations and um further information that we haven't had time to talk about. Um, But we are getting close to the end of our time. So I just wanted to ask you, um, what research projects are you working on right now? What do we have to look forward to in the future from you? Right. Well, I went from, you know, people going through own infertility to sperm donors and now to egg donors. So for the past four years, I've been conducting research with egg donors. I've interviewed now about 100 and collected about 340 surveys just in the last two months which was wow. quite shocking. I'm, yeah, so that's been a really exciting project. And I'm currently in Spain right now uh, comparing egg donation in the United States and Spain. It's a new project that was just recently funded by the National Science Foundation. So I'm absolutely ecstatic to have, have that support. 
And one of the things that I'm really interested in, in looking at these two different landscapes of egg donation, uh, the United States, which is, a, which is a very commodified market and virtually unregulated or inconsistently regulated, and Spain, which is a more regulated system. And both of these places are, are international hubs, so to speak, for people going through treatment for, with donor eggs. And I'm very interested in how these different um, spaces operate and, and also how egg donor decisions and experiences may, may vary in these two different systems. So, for example, in Spain, the maximum compensation is 1,100 euros, whereas in the United States, I've heard donors being paid anywhere from you know a few hundred dollars a number of years ago, usually on average between seven and $10,000. The highest I've heard is $250,000. I've seen, for example, wow. in my data with my research, um, my, my quantitative data, I've seen we've, we've gone through and analyzed and broken down how people are paid by ancestral group. And we found, for example, that the top paid donors are, are and I'll be writing, writing about this, the top paid donors are Asian, followed by Jewish, followed by other groups. So to me, it's really interesting to look at how we think about um, compensation structures, people's decisions to provide um, eggs under these different regulated or underregulated structures. Um, what what constitutes undue inducement? How do people make decisions about their bodies? How do they think about risk in exchange for money? Um, and how is risk presented in the informed consent process? Um, also in Spain, anonymity <clears throat> is required versus in the United States, anonymity fluctuates and people can negotiate known donations, identity release donations, uh, future contact, current contact, and, and, and anonymity to some degree. Well, what's going to be the fallout years to come? Because in, in Spain, the, the direct-to-consumer DNA test kits have not really taken off yet. So is anonymity going to be a viable regulation to have given the fact that technologies are emerging or have emerged that negate any possibility of viability of anonymity. So these are some of the things that I'm looking at now, and it's a really exciting time. And um, yeah, so I'm, I'm here in Spain doing my research and uh, we'll be back in the United States in July. And this is a three-year project. So I'm looking forward to getting a couple more books out. <laughs> Well, I am so grateful that you took some time out of your precious research time to talk with us. I have so many questions now about egg donation, but I will hold off on those until you get one of those next books out. And then hopefully we'll be able to have you back here on the show. But for now, I just wanted to say thanks again for sharing your research with us and wish you all the best with your fieldwork. Thank you. And it was, a, it was delightful talking to you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was my interview with Dr. Diane Tober about her book, Romancing the Sperm, Shifting Biopolitics and the Making of Modern Families, which was published by Rutgers University Press in 2019. Thanks for joining us, and we'll be back again soon with another episode of New Books in Anthropology.